Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. You know, that's a bad thing about this podium and being taped at a conference. When you make statements like that, they, they get recorded. And there's always somebody that's going to live longer than you, you know, that is going to remind you of that. And that story reminds me of the very first AA meeting I ever went to. Uh, I was so embarrassed about being in Alcoholics Anonymous, I introduced myself as an Alateen. And um, I had been in Alateen for years because my father was a drunk and a damn good one. And uh, so, therefore, I felt real justified to do that. And there's an old guy, and I mean a real crusty old fire hazard in Houston, that'll never forget the fact that I introduced myself as an Alateen at my very first AA meeting. Now, I want you all to know that I was at that AA meeting in a pair of green paper pajamas. And there was not any doubt in anybody's mind when I walked in that, that room puking and spewing what I was there for, but I let them know real quick that I was an Alateen. So thank you for my introduction. But I have had buttloads of fun here in California this time. Um, my name is Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. And as is customary where I got sober, my sobriety date is January 27, 1974. <laughs> Uh, I just had a emotional wave hit my throat, and for those of you that have never heard me speak, let me warn you, uh, I'm known to be a extensive crier from the podium. I don't know why that is, and I'm having a hormone problem. Um, to make matters even worse, I have developed an allergy to my new hormone patches, so they're not working real well, and... For you gentlemen that may not have experienced your wife having a hysterectomy yet, it's worse than PMS. So <clears throat> I'm in one of those um, situations today where I may not be able to predict the outcome of my actions today. So uh, I'm not making any promises. And the other added problem to this is, is I've never been behind a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous without a cup of coffee and a cigarette. So, uh, this may be a real deal for all of us. Uh, before I go any further, uh, I would like to thank the committee for a second opportunity to come and share my story here in California. California is real, real special to me. Um, I did get to spend some time here this time, and I got to go up into the mountains, and I was just bowled over. The last time I was here, I stayed with Harriet. And uh, she took me through the Napa Wine Valley, because I'm pretty well known around Texas as the Wynette. I'm everybody's favorite Wynette. And uh, <clears throat> so she felt compelled to take me through the Wine Valley, and that was real interesting. But Beth and I went up through the mountains uh, Friday during that rainstorm, and that was the most incredible sight I've ever seen in my life. It was totally awesome. Um, I'd like to uh, especially thank Brian and Dave and the speaker committee who invited me down here, there's something real 
awesome about being invited back a second time. You know, as a speaker, you're always fearful that you're not going to do a good job or, you know, you're, you're, uh, they're going to feel like they wasted their money, you know, or, or something of that nature. And, and, and so it made me feel real good when they called me. And they called me, Brian called me at a real special time. I got to tell you all this. In April of this year, I became a grandma. And thank you. And I was in Bryan, Texas, which is where Texas A&M University is at, uh, with my daughter having my first grandbaby when Brian called me to ask if I'd come up and speak at this conference. And uh, I got real tickled yesterday when Carol Ann was talking about what a privilege, an absolute privilege it is to be considered a young person. You know? I'll never forget the first time I was referred to as a lady. You know, I mean, that, that burned an impression on my mind. I was about five years sober, and it made a real impact on me. Uh, I'd never been a lady before. Uh, I learned how to be a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned how to be a mother in Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned how to be a human being in Alcoholics Anonymous. Carol Ann talked about um, how as alcoholics we tend to seek out um, lower companionship. I was the lower companionship. I was the kid at the end of the street that your mom wouldn't let you play with. Um, If y'all gave me the rest of the afternoon, that's how long it would take me to describe to you the miracles and the blessings that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. I consider myself to be the richest person in the world today. Uh, I've made millions and lost millions in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with a 10th grade education, and I have two college degrees today, sober. I have two beautiful, beautiful children, a husband that I've managed to stay with through thick and thin till death do us part. You know, Young People's Alcoholics Anonymous back in the old days in 1973 had to have sponsors in order to have a young people's meeting. And the old guy that used to be our sponsor, our young people's group sponsor, talked about stability, continuity, fictuativeness. And those, God bless you. And, you know, I was a track star in college. Speed will help you do that, you know. <laughs> and uh, I asked Carol Ann yesterday how she managed to stay so thin without, you know, diet pills, because I've really had a problem. I've averaged about 10 pounds a year since I've been sober, and I'm working on 20 now, y'all. So y'all add that up. <clears throat> um as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I lost my whole train of thought when that guy brought me that coffee, but as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I am supposed to tell you, I'm supposed to qualify myself. Y'all call it qualifying here. Um, I'm supposed to qualify myself. And, you know, I consider that to be the most bizarre thing that we have to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. If there's anybody in the room right now that's really not an alcoholic, you're just in here pretending, please raise your hand. 
You know, I mean, can you imagine somebody not, you know, I mean, coming here for a good time? There were a few last night trying to get in our dance. We had the most, y'all had the most happening party last night on the strip. I want y'all to know it. <laughs> Beth and I cruised the boulevard out there last night and parked it out there on the bench. And we, all those drunks had stopped. I said, hey, man, how did you get in that party in there? I said, you just walk in? He said, no kidding. I said, yeah. You been drinking? Yeah. You qualify. I didn't realize that, you know, they would actually try to crash the gate out there. It's a good thing we had some good security. I didn't mean to bash the party myself. But uh, I'm supposed to tell you a little bit about what it was like, and I really like the way Harry R. from my home group um, describes it, and what he said was, it was hell and now it's swell. However... That's not exactly what y'all expect from me today, so I'm supposed to tell you a little bit about what it was like where I drank and uh, what I did. And uh, to give you some of that background, I'm 38 years old. I came into the program when I was 18 years old. And I came through the, the flower children, hippie, hate ashbury uh, um, the Vietnam War, um, and a transition period in Alcoholics Anonymous that will never be forgotten by the old, the old timers. I came into the program at a period of time when AA was going through all of these changes. If you guys sitting in this room today, you young people sitting in this room today, could see what it was like in those rooms in 1973, you'd understand the blessings that have been bestowed on you. Those of us that are sitting in here with, like, Bill from last night and Carol Ann and some of the others that have been around for a long time with those crusty old fire hazards that used to escort us out of the room because we were duly addicted, you know, um, didn't say hello to each other, didn't hold each other's hands during the meetings, okay? Well, like when we introduce ourselves today and we say, my name's Ann, I'm alcoholic, and everybody says, hi, Ann. They didn't do those, those things in 1973. Women were far and few in between. Um, I was told to find a sponsor with some preliminarity. That was a good one. Uh, <laughs> Y'all know what I was trying to say. Um, similarities. And I was married to the same husband and had two children. I'd never gone to the penitentiary. I'd never had a DWI, and I'd never been locked up. So I was kind of up that proverbial creek without one of those paddles. Um uh, most of the guy, the ladies that were in the, um, I use that term late, loosely, uh, that were in the AA rooms at that time were pretty elderly. Um, most of them were working girls. There were a few housewives, but not many. Um, and nobody that, it, that I met in those days, there may have been some, but I didn't meet them that had been married to just one husband. I did all that stuff sober. Uh, I'm your real typical young person. I came here without anything. I didn't have a high school education. I didn't. I had a husband and two children that I didn't know, you know. Um, I grew up on the north side of Houston, which is um, like the barrio area for you all to, to recognize, the barrio area, the, the wrong side of the tracks kind of kid. My parents were both educators. I came from a good home. 
but our income, we were in a lower income bracket. Um, my mother was a neurotic, and my, and my dad was a drunk, you know. Um, my dad was a cattle auctioneer, and, and we cruised the, the cattle barns selling the, uh, livestock, going to all the fat stock shows and the county fairs and those type of things. Um, he always did the, I don't know if y'all have FFA here in your high school system, but there we do. It's Future Farmers of America, and, you know, they show pigs and cows and all that kind of stuff. And as children, we were all involved in the 4-H club and the Future Farmers of America club. And, and so that's what my life revolved around. I had never eaten store-bought beef until I was 16 years old. Uh, I was raised on a farm. And, honey, just as quick as I could get off that farm, I did. And we went to the big city. Uh, the coolest thing in the whole wide world is I got married uh, when I was 17 years old because I was pregnant. And, um, you know, it was just a real shameful thing at that time. And uh, that was during the hippie movement and the bra burning days and all that kind of stuff. So we lived, my husband and I lived in a tent in my parents' backyard, and we just thought we were the coolest. I mean, we were the coolest kids on the strip now because we lived in a tent. It was like being in a commune, um, running away from home to go to Woodstock, you know. Um, I'm duly addicted, but I do because I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I sobered up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I do strictly adhere to the first, third, and fifth tradition of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I do have to tell you that I am duly addicted. Um, and part of my story entails that. But that is my story. Um, I'm for, absent, let me state this real clearly as Carol Ann did yesterday, I'm for anything that works. C-A, S-A, G-A, A-A, N-A, I don't give a shit. If it keeps you from stealing my TV, Go for it. If it turns your life around and gives you half the blessings, a third of the blessings, an ounce, an iota of the blessings that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, I'm all for it. I tried everything that I could to get clean and sober. I didn't think Alcoholics Anonymous was going to help me because it didn't help my dad. And I wasn't the kind of drunk my dad was. But I spent all the time that I could possibly stand out there on those streets hustling, scuffling, horse scores and dinosaur and doing all that stuff that I got to do to get that fixed. You know, to get that fixed. Uh, it had been long past that I was using alcohol. It had been using me for years. I had no control over what was happening in my life anymore, and it had been that way for as long as I could remember when I finally hit the doors here. I drug myself into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, literally, beaten and broken, completely. There was nothing left in me. I didn't even have the will to live when I got here. Um, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God my dad never gave up. My dad tried for 17 years to get sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to no avail. To no avail. But that one fateful December the 29th, 1973, when I picked up that telephone and I called my dad and I said, Dad, I need some help. I'm strung out on heroin, barbiturates, and alcohol, and I don't know how to quit. He knew who to call, and he had a place to take me, and people that would believe in me. And loved me when I was unlovable. 
Um, the 12 and 12 best describe what it was like for me. In the last paragraph of chapter 1, I really believe in staying in the solution. Uh, you know, I lived the problem. Today, I want to live the solution. So I'm ending my qualifying here. Under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA. And there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. Then and only then do we become as open-minded to conviction and as willing to listen as the dying can be. And that's where I was. I was literally dying when I crawled through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. And I've never found a better way to describe where I was when I came to the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 18 years old, strung out on barbiturates, heroin, and alcohol, was married, had two children, and a sugar daddy. I had done all of those things that I said, if I ever do that, I'll quit. If I ever stoop that low, I'll quit. I broke into my parents' home and stole everything that was precious to them that I could carry out the front door and get away with. I practically bankrupted my dad's business. But thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you see, my dad, even though he couldn't stay sober, was practicing the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Actually, Al-Anon, because he had released me with love. I was a product of his walking disease. You see, what I saw when my dad drank in my impressionable years as a teenager and a young adult, like Carol Ann was talking about yesterday or Bill or somebody, I looked at my mom, who was an absolute basket case, who chain-smoked cigarettes, which ultimately killed her. who didn't sleep more than two or three hours a night, who worked from daylight to dark, who had no time to spend with her children. And then a look at my dad, and she was a teetotaler. She never touched alcohol. And then look at my dad. Who from the outside looked as though He was living in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, you know. He didn't stay up all night. He was asleep by 6 or 7 o'clock. And he slept till noon every day. He didn't have those stark, raving, crazy eyes like my mother had. He didn't have any of that stuff that my mother had that I could see right here in front of me. And he drank. And that's what I thought. If I drink, I won't feel this terror. I won't feel this pain. It won't hurt. I won't be lonely. And I assume I was approximately 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that age group. When I started measuring 
my insides to your outside. Because that's what I did in my home. I measured my insides by my dad's outside. He looked calm, cool, and collected all the time. And he was passed out. I started drinking by taking my dad. We used to sober my dad up, but he drank Old Crow, and that's what I started drinking. Uh, I used to, we'd take his Old Crow and pour it out and fill it up with Listerine and tea. And what would happen after, the Listerine would so it would burn when it'd go down his throat, and he's so blind drunk, he was a blind drunk drinker. You know, he drank till he was just completely oblivious walking. And uh, the tea so it'd be brown colored. And um, <clears throat> it'd take him three or four hours to start puking and, and coming alive, and when he'd start getting belligerent and ugly, uh, then we'd call Carney Mary at the turning point or Jimmy O'Rourke's place and have one of them come get him, and we'd send him off for three or four days. Well, once I got up into that, you know, smart aleck age bracket that we all, go, that they all go through, um, I started taking that old crow out in the, the alleyway. My dad, we were living in an apartment at that time in my life because uh, my dad had gotten drunk and burned our house down by lighting a cigarette off the stove where some chicken grease was, you know, from fried chicken was sitting on the stove and then anyway burnt the damn house down. So we were living in an apartment, all five of us, kids and my parents, and uh, <clears throat> I take that bottle of crow out in the alleyway, and I had me a coffee can planted out there in that, that alley, and it was cool, and it stayed damp and wet in that alley, and I'd pour that old crow down in that can, and I'd take me a cup or whatever I happened to find, a pop bottle, and stick it down in that and fill that can up. Well, my dad sobered up about once a month. So I had a pretty ready supply, and, and I was already learning to scheme pretty well, and I watched where he hid his bottles. I knew where all his hiding spots were, and he'd stay, when he was drinking, he'd stay drunk to the point of, thank you, he'd uh, stay drunk to the point of uh, being oblivious to what was going around, on around him and had no idea how much booze was in his bottle. So I'd go and pour two or three drinks out of each bottle and put it back where I got it, and take my coffee can out in the alley, and that's what I'd do. I'd go out in that alley with me, star with any have star on them, plastic, you know, a coffee can, whatever I could find, a can, a bottle, anything. Dip it down into that coffee can, have me a drink of Old Crow and a reefer or two, you know, and I'd just hang out in the alley. And I did that for a long, long time. From that point, you know, it, it, it progressed and spiraled down from there. Um, I was always able to manipulate my mother. Uh, most of you women will understand that. My mother, bless her heart, had more than she could deal with with us kids and my dad. And um, <clears throat> so it was pretty easy for me. You know, I, I became the little adult in our household. I fed the boys and did the laundry and most of the housework and so on and so forth. Mom did the grocery shopping and that sort of work and that sort of stuff. So <clears throat> the point in time in my life when I knew that I was going to be able to skate through this deal pretty good, I got off into acid pretty bad. And, you know, I tripped through my teenage years, period. You know, that was during Timothy O'Leary and all that kind of stuff, and I was too cool. And uh, <clears throat> anyway... My mom, I'd gone out on this date, and that was during the peasant blouse time. Some of you guys are old enough to remember those where, you know, they have the elastic in the in the neckline, and we'd pull them down on our shoulders like this and 
lower and lower. Hell, they don't wear anything now. Back then, that was real risque. <laughs> but anyway, um, I had on this peasant blouse, and I'd gone out on this date that this guy eventually married and had two children with. I'd gone out on this date, and I came, we'd gone out. I was a Boone's Farm wine drinker and um, dated dated the kind of guys and ran with the crowd that, that uh, thought I was the coolest thing walking because I was the only one capable of driving at the end of the night. What they didn't understand is it was my tolerance level was so high. I'd drink every one of the football team under the table and drive them all home in the school bus. So, you know, drop them off on the front doorstep just drinking and going, drinking and going. I got a hand, uh, hardship driver's license at 13. So I was driving from day one. As soon as I was big enough to get behind a tractor, I was driving. That's all, that's where I learned how to drive, y'all. That's why I make Liz come with me and she drives now, because I'm more used to driving tractors than I am cars, and you can go where you want to in a tractor. So anyway, um, I don't remember a whole lot of that. You see, I was a blackout drinker from day one. I, I was an absolute walking blackout. Uh, I don't remember a whole lot of that time. This childhood regression stuff and all these buzzwords we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd laugh my ass off. I don't want to know. <laughs> I think, let that sleeping dog sleep. <laughs> there were some nightmares in my past, and I know it, and I want them to stay there. You know, I don't want to remember a lot of that stuff. Not right now. I couldn't go through treatment in 1992, y'all. They start slapping incest issues and all that shit on you guys. Boom. 30 days. I'm like, oh, my God. Some of these girls and some of these people that come into the club today out of these hot to trot $50,000 treatment centers, I'm sitting there going, <gasps> I didn't have to deal with most of that stuff till I was 10 or 15 years sober when I had enough strength, mental capacity, emotional stability, continuity, and sponsorship, program, principles, steps to deal with that stuff. Uh, Jesus. Some of the some of the stuff that you if you guys could just count your blessings, you'd never walk out those doors again. I swear. I swear. When I got sober, anything I came in the doors with, you could take off with penicillin or Ajax. You know? You guys one toke, one toke off of some of that stuff y'all are smoking out there killed you. Graveyard dead. First time. We've all had friends die from the first time. Lenny Baez. Look around you. The first sexual experience. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Do y'all know what a miracle I am? <laughs> right, Carolyn? <laughs> You know, I mean, oh my God, y'all. I came up during the free love period. Count them hell, I couldn't. If, <laughs> if I had to sit down and make a list, I couldn't. You know, you guys don't know what a blessing you are in today's society. I know I'm a blessing. I know I've been blessed. I went out on this date with this guy wearing this peasant blouse, <clears throat> and I was, ugh, I was in a walking blackout, 
I came through the door, and I was doing that alcohol bob you do when you're standing at the door like this. And my mother, we had a pretty small little house, but when you're on acid and, and uh, Boone's Farm wine, that living room looked as long as this banquet room. Because I was on a mission to get from the front door to the bathroom. I had waist-length hair, you know, and I was on a mission to get from that front door to that bathroom before my mother smelled the pot, the booze, or the puke, one or the other. It didn't matter what. And, you know, that stuff stays in your hair, so first thing I'd do is hit the toilet and then the tub, and I'd wash my hair. And my mother looks like a Hummel doll. She has those great big eyes. And um, <clears throat> when you're stoned, they look this big anyway. And I always knew she was watching me. And <clears throat> I was standing there at the doorway, drunk as Cooter Brown, trying to get straight, pull it together, group, and get through the door. And she's sitting in that chair like this. And I come through the front door, and she said, and Denise, and that was my first clue. I was in some serious stuff because she used my middle name. She said, and Denise, your blouse is on wrong side out. <laughs> and I know everybody in this room has experienced that moment of clarity. When you go from drunk as shit to stone cold sober. And that's what happened. Screwed up the best buzz I'd had in a long time. But I did one of those real quick, you know, where you just barely bob your head down and check look. Sure enough, that bluff was wrong side out. And I'm like, oh, man. So I, all of a sudden, it hit me, and I knew I was cool. I busted out in tears. I had those on-demand tears. It's like, <clears throat> I busted out in tears, looked at my mother and said, Oh, my God, you let me go out of the house like this? <laughs> and then my mother started crying and apologized. I was living in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and I was Alice in Wonderland, off to the party, off to the tea party. You know, I brought all of that baggage with me into Alcoholics Anonymous. I brought all that ability to lie through my teeth, look you square in the eye, and steal your purse while I'm talking to you. You know? Uh, geez. But my drinking period was just one series of those events. One after another, after another, after another. Until I got to the point where I couldn't keep my lies straight, I couldn't remember who I lied about, and all of a sudden I began to believe my own lies. Have any of you ever told a lie so many times and so much that you believed it yourself? The scariest I ever been in Alcoholics Anonymous was I was at a conference on the coast, and I was telling my story, and all of a sudden I realized I was telling a lie from the podium. Oh, my God. You know, and I had to straighten it out right there from the podium and say, you know what, I lied so much. I told that lie so many times, you know, all that gunfire and knives and chains and horse scores and dinosaur stuff. Whoop, ain't nobody been that bad. Maybe Carol. But, 
You know what I mean? You got to be the baddest dude on the block. Period. And then you grow up. Reality sinks in. It don't matter. That ain't what it's all about. That is not what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. You're looking at all that I am. This is me. This is it. You know, I'd like to stand up here and cast some wonderful pearls for all of y'all. Save you, dunk you, sprinkle you, and, you know, heal you. But I can't do that. This is my story. This is all there is to it. You know, I come from a little two-horse town in Texas. I drank too much, did too much boot scooting with too many of them damn cowboys, and I paid for it. You know? Now, where do we go from here? This is what, this is what life is all about today. I'm a grandma. You know? I love to travel. I like to max them credit cards out. I like to practice that damn retail therapy. I play bingo. <laughs> I play bingo every Friday night that I can sneak out of the house. And I do whatever I have to do to be happy today. You know what? I spent 18 years of my life depressed, repressed, regressed, you know, all that crap. I don't want any more of that today. You guys promised me I never had to be alone again when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have attempted in the past 18 years and 10 months to live life to its fullest. You see, I found out in 1984 that life is real damn short. I don't take anything for granted today. I'd have driven 500 miles to see my grandbaby the day before I came down here just in case y'all decided to have another earthquake. Just in case that plane decided to go down. You see, I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous at those crusty old AA meetings where they talked about 30 years of liquid insanity. They beat on that damn big book and talked about John Barleycorn. I sat in those meetings going, who the hell is John Barleycorn? I thought John Barleycorn was the president of AA for the longest time. Those crusty old old guys would sit there, and they had this place in the old 24-hour club in Houston called the Sick Couch, and when the drunks were trying to get into the 24-hour club, they had to sit on that couch for 12 hours before they were allowed to go upstairs as a test, I guess, in endurance. I never figured that one out. But at any rate, anybody that came through the door, you had to pass in front of that sick couch, and everybody got to shake the new guy's hand. It's a pretty good principle. I like the theory. But anyway, my sponsor, that was a requirement of my sponsor that I attend that meeting, so I did. And uh, I also got sober during a time when it wasn't voodoo for men to sponsor women and women to sponsor men, and I had a man sponsor, and a woman couldn't have handled me in those days. He was good for me. <laughs> so we had a parting of the way. But anyway, I was sitting in that meeting one night, and this old guy fell out on fell out on the floor having DTs. And you see, I'd seen my daddy many a day having DTs, so I knew what DTs were. I want you to know, not a soul, even the guy from the podium, blinked an eye, budged, moved out their chair, did anything. And I was mortified. I sat there, that guy was flopping on the floor like a fish, his tongue hanging out, his eyes rolled back in his head. Pretty soon here come the EMTs, and they threw him up on a... The guy from behind the coffee bar had called the EMTs immediately, but I didn't know that. You know, they did, but I didn't. And I was sitting there, and the guy was flopping in the aisle right beside me. But nobody else moved, so I was scared to. I was brought up in Alcoholics Anonymous where you didn't do anything without asking permission. 
So I just sat there, and this guy flopped. The EMTs came in eventually and took him out of the room, and the guy behind the podium never missed a lick. It didn't bother him a bit. I was mortified. And I was sitting there frozen in my chair, and Larry elbowed me and said, See that guy? I said, Yes, sir. Keep on drinking. That's what's going to happen to you. And I was like, you know, the little kid in Home Alone. But I believed him. I believed him. See, when I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was teachable. Because I was beaten and broken as only the dying can be. I was teachable. I'm also another oddity in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came through these doors one time. And one time only, and I can't remember who it was, but one of the speakers this weekend talked about that. You do not have to be a treadmill alcoholic. Let me be the first to tell you. You see, I made a decision to never drink again one day at a time. I wasn't allowed to take a drink no matter what. No matter if my ass fell off. I could not take a drink. And if my ass did fall off, I had to pick it up, put it under my arm, and take it to a meeting. And that's what they told you in 1973. But you know what? It worked. Because I never took a drink again. And I'm happier today than I have ever been in my entire life. Ever. Ricardo Monteblon invited me on to Fantasy Island when I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have sold myself short if y'all would have made, if one of the requirements would have been to write yourself a recipe for what you want your sobriety to be. I would have sold myself short. You know, y'all seen this weekend, is it the hope thing? It really is a hope thing. I was hopeless and helpless when I came here. And I was hopeless and helpless and unlovable and unloved when I came here. Most of you probably wouldn't have poured a bucket of water on me if I was on fire on your front porch. But there was a scraggly little group of young people in Houston, Texas that saw life worth saving when I hit that nut house. Oh, Carney Mary, I called her after I'd been attacked the third time in that house. I said, man, if you don't pick me somebody. That was before they segregated the nuts from the drunk. And I was only drunk on the ward. Jesus, it's bad stuff, y'all. I called Connie Mary on the telephone. I said, man, if you don't send somebody up here, I'm going to die in this place. And she sent these three characters up to see me. Now, bear in mind, y'all, this is in 1973. Right at the end of the Vietnam War and the heat of the love children and all that kind of free love, brawl burning days. And these three people came to see me, and I lovingly refer to them as the Mod Squad because they look just like the Mod Squad. Kathy had waist-length straight, board-straight hair, and she was wearing uh, hot pants and a 
velour shirt that you could see through, and no bra, and these lace-up sandals that came way above her knees. We called them Jesus stompers. They were made out of uh, tire treads, and uh, <coughs> her hair was parted down the middle and came just enough, you know, she looked like sheepdog. Larry was wearing a daishiki, and they're getting popular again, so most of you, I don't have to explain that, most of you know what a daishiki is, and he was into the natural thing, getting naked and reading the big book stuff, and um, so he didn't wear anything under his daishiki, and uh, Michael was a dried up speed freak whose father had been in alcohol, he's a legend in Alcoholics Anonymous, but of course Mike didn't want anything to do with AA because of his dad, he was kind of like me. So anyway, Michael was a dried-up speed freak who had an afro about this big. He was a white boy, too. And he had on a pair of black leather bell-bottoms that were this wide that tripped him when he walked up the street in a wide, white belt that was about this wide and had 300 holes in it from the buckle to the other side. And those are the three people that came to make the 12-step call on me. And, you know, Michael... Speed freaks see things in the recesses of their mind over here that other people don't see, you know. It's called paranoia, but I didn't know that then. And this afro was free-flowing that Mike had. And uh, that afro just be flying in the wind. And he'd see that thing move, and that hair would just go like this. And Larry didn't wear any shoes either, just his dashiki. And he was our guru because he'd been sober 13 years. And that was a whole lot of time to us. And he was cool. He wasn't no fire hazard. So when I got sober and I had to go to those meetings at the 24-hour club, it was like walking into the Lord's Last Supper. You know, everybody there had been sober 20 years. They're legends. They're written about in our books. And those people, as weird as I was, y'all just can't imagine. 30 days before I walked through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, after being on a serious barbiturate alcohol run, I thought it'd be nice to have some mushroom tea. And so I did. And I had this waist-length hair. And, you know, most of you know what that stuff does, or at least read about it. And uh, <clears throat> I was living in, at the tea party, you know, with Alice in Wonderland, and we thought it'd be really cool to frost my hair. So me and one of the other tramps I was with frosted my hair, and in the process of this frosting job that she did on me, a little drop of that bleach fell on my eyebrow, so I had a half a white eyebrow, too. And I think we tripped off into another neighborhood, probably Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, in the process of this bleach job she was doing, because we only put two or three little clumps, and they were right here. So I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous with this waist-length hair and this huge white streak of hair coming down to here and a half a white eyebrow. I looked, you know when that guy said last, when Bill said last night about this, that was a typical Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, I looked like Elvira with the stripe. With, yeah, racing stripe. But those old guys at that Lord's Last Supper put their arm around me and patted me on the popo and told me to keep coming back. But they loved me in spite of myself. I spewed venom for a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous. Y'all, my language hasn't been too wonderful from the podium today, but I've cleaned it up. I use that F word about every third one. 
and a few others. I said words then that I wouldn't say today under any circumstances, no matter how mad you made me, no matter how bad that horse ran in that race. But those old guys loved me when I was unlovable. They gave me a set of tools in 1973 to build a firm foundation, to build a home on bedrock. And you see, I built a home. I built a network in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went through those steps. I sponsor people. I read the book. I go to meetings. How many of you guys are sitting in me? This is my major, most major concern in Alcoholics Anonymous today. How many of you guys with six, seven, eight years or more sit in meetings every night and can't find people in the room who have been sober 10, 15, 20 years? That's a scary thought. Where are our old-timers at? I have, I moved to Waco, Texas three years ago, and I've been looking for a sponsor since I met, I went there. You know what my first criteria is? they got to make at least as many meetings as I do. That's sad, isn't it? That's sad that Alcoholics Anonymous is coming to that. Any of you guys are sitting in here with seven, eight, nine, ten years of sobriety and think you're walking on water? Better hold on to your seat pants. A whole lot of these young people that are growing up marrying your sons and your daughters and having your grandbabies. And if we don't pass on what's been so freely given to us, it ain't going to be here. I'm on a soapbox, so I'm going to get off of it. I'm supposed to be telling you all about my spiritual experience. <clears throat> my spiritual experience took... See, I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Agnathia. I was somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist, and I couldn't make up my mind which one. I was scared to say I did believe and scared to say I didn't, you know, in case I... Never mind. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. So, anyway, I... There was an old guy in Houston, Texas named Fletcher... Jay, and Fletcher didn't believe. He was an agnostic. And I thank God every day of my life for Fletcher, because I think I'd have had a real problem around here if it hadn't have been for Fletcher. Because some of you guys get God in your life after about 90 days and get real pious with that stuff. And if you want to test that theory, go to your home, go to a different group that you've never been to before, people that don't love you and care about you and didn't hold your hand when you were puking, and when they pray, step away from the circle. Or don't participate in God. Or tell them you're an agnostic. Not real popular. People in Alcoholics Anonymous don't like to believe that, but that's the God's honest truth. And I'm walking proof of it. But thank God for Fletcher J. Because Fletcher told me if I didn't want to believe, the big book Alcoholics Anonymous told me I didn't have to. Now, the 12 and 12 in Chapter 7 tells me that if I don't, I may not have any lasting sobriety. And if I do stay sober, I won't be happy. Okay? But that was all right. Life's full of a trade-out. That was a trade-out. I stayed sober for eight and a half years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous without a power greater than myself. And I wasn't a very happy camper. 
And when I was eight and a half years sober, I was suicidal. I was still staying sober. I was just an addict without the chemical. I was doing all those things that, you know, we do. I was sponsoring people. I was going to meetings. I was writing. And, you know, I was doing it all. Going to conferences, being involved, doing service work, service work, service work, service work, service work. You know, service work and more service work. Your first year birthday present from your sponsor in Texas is an AA service manual. And you better know how to quote it. So, <clears throat> I, but I was dying. I was literally dying. I couldn't live in my own skin, and I've been sober eight years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're sitting in this room tonight, and you are sitting where I was sitting in 1983, don't give up until the miracle happens. Because if you just don't take a drink, and you keep suiting up and showing up, God will get you. God will get you. See, that's what I kept doing. I kept coming. I kept coming. I kept an open mind. I kept being teachable. And one day, I saw somebody that literally glowed. They glowed. They had something I wanted. And I wanted it so bad, I was willing to walk up and say, how'd you get it? What do I got to do? What do I got to do to not feel like this? And what I was told came directly from Bill Wilson's spiritual experience. I was completely defeated. Absolute calamity. And total admission. And in sep on September the 10th of 1983, I had my spiritual awakening in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the hellhole of the world. But I had my spiritual awakening there. And my whole life turned around after that. And I wish I could stand here in front of you and tell you this beautiful, flowery, syrupy story about what happened to me from that point on. But that's not my reality. My reality is, is that a marriage that I waited a long time for dissolved in the next 30 days. I moved back to Houston in complete humiliation because I had failed. I'd married a psychopath. Sober. In September, my grandpa died. And then in January, my dad had a heart attack and died. In um, April, no, I'm sorry. In March, my mother died. In June, my sponsor died. And then in August, my brother died. And I felt like a skint knee that you keep bumping into. I felt like raw meat. But because of September of 1983, when I sat underneath that pecan tree, and I said, God, I absolutely am beaten. And I know you love me. And I don't want to die. And I don't want to live with this pain anymore. Please comfort me. 
and make me your child. I went through that year without taking a drink, a drug, smoking any dope, taking any hostages, and any of that other stuff that women alcoholics do when they quit drinking. I lived through the most horrendous year any human being could be condemned to. And I did it with a loving God. And I did it with faith. Faith that maybe I didn't understand what was happening in my life. Maybe God wasn't making me privy to the master picture, master plan. Maybe he knew something I didn't know. And you know what? Five years later, he did know something I didn't know. Because I can honestly stand here in front of you today and tell you not one time, not one time during that nine-month span when those five people died on me and left me that I asked God why. Not one. And today I know why. Because you see, I have a message. And what my message is for you today is that God just is. God just is. And with hope, anything's possible. With faith, everything is possible. You see, I wish I could tell you that I'm one of these really strong, spiritually founded people in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm not. I was kind of bowled over about being invited to be your spiritual speaker today. But I truly believe that God has blessed my life. And Alcoholics Anonymous has blessed my life. You see, I never lived before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I can't thank anything other than Alcoholics Anonymous for my life. Because my life began when I got sober. Being the trash can kind of junkie that I was, I didn't like Bill was talking about. I didn't have a drug of choice. I didn't care what it was. If it gave me an altered state of mind, it was fine with me. If it got me out of where I was, it was okay with me. And through Alcoholics Anonymous and a power greater than myself today, I can get that peace and that oneness and that wholeness that I looked through, looked for for so long out there on the street. Through food, through drugs, through men, through credit cards. I'm still working on that one. I uh, normally close my talk with a prayer that Mary used and after I lost all those people in my life her prayer became real important me and it, it thank you God for what you gave me and thank you God for what you took away from me 
and thank you, God, for what you left me. I'd like to thank Liz for coming with me to California. And um, all you people for being a part of my life today. Dave, Brian, I don't know his name, but the guy that was working the counter out there that sold me the raffle tickets. He's a hoot, y'all. Meeting Carol Ann. My life is so blessed today. There's nothing that I want for today that I can't have. Nothing today that I cannot have. And I truly believe that from the bottom of my heart. And you guys that are sitting in here that are young kids that have your whole life ahead of you and everything that there is to experience in this world out there, believe me, believe me when I tell you, if you don't hear anything else I tell you today, Believe me when I tell you that anything, any dream, any fantasy that you have in your life right now, right this moment, is possible. As long as you don't take a drink. You know, I didn't come in here to get better. I didn't come in here to get well. I came in here to learn how to not drink one day at a time. And everything else that I have in my life today is a byproduct of not taking a drink. That's the first thing that you got to learn. All that other stuff is icing on the cake. Icing on the cake. The prayer that I want to share with you all today is real important to me. And it's called Just for Today, Lord. These are my rules today. These are the rules that I live by in my day-to-day life. Just for today, Lord, I will live through the next 12 hours. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.